Every great love story begins with a Harry Winston diamond. For nearly a century, Harry Winston has been the name behind some of the world's most exceptional diamonds. That's because every Harry Winston diamond ring is as one of a kind as the love story it represents, the ultimate symbol of romance, devotion, and elegance. From emerald cut and cushion cut to oval and pear-shaped, every diamond is hand-selected for maximum beauty and brilliance and placed in a timeless platinum setting. Say I do to a Harry Winston engagement ring and you're happily ever after at harrywinston.com. When Sarah Glass walked into the studio, I had to say something about her outfit. Uh, I'm noticing you're wearing some very fabulous black leather pants. These are my power pants. This is like when I have something important to do that day. It's like, these are the black leather pants. Would you have worn something like this, I don't know, 15 years ago? Oh, no. Even five years ago. Or maybe five years ago, I would have worn these in the city, Mm. but not back on Long Island. Sarah grew up in an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community. For most of her life, she wore skirts and dresses, never pants, and definitely not leather ones. Because there are strict rules about what Orthodox women can and can't wear, and Sarah followed all of them. I was wearing a wig mm-hmm. over my hair, so it, would, it was like a long blonde wig, and um, I wore skirts. Mm-hmm. Something modest that covered my collarbone. Mm elbows and knees and then I would need to wear tights below that so that you wouldn't see any exposed skin but 14 years ago Sarah quietly started changing how she showed herself to the world at first it was slow I stopped covering my hair Mm. and I wore my skirts a little shorter and I was sending like a nonverbal signal that something had shifted what shifted was that Sarah started being honest with herself. Sarah's gay, and she was done hiding it. So she started rejecting the rules and beliefs she'd grown up with. And she knew people would notice. I think what I wanted was for them to not make the assumption Mm. of heteronormativity or religiosity when looking at me. Mm -hmm. I wanted them to have a doubt in their minds, and so that they would know that if they really wanted me to be, like, straight or religious— That would be something they would need to ask me, whether I was or wasn't. Mm. As opposed to assuming. Yeah. From the New York Times, I'm Anna Martin. This is Modern Love. Love now and Did you fall in love last time? I love love. Stronger than anything. For the love. Love. And I love you more than anything. You're still love. Love. We're spending today with Sarah Glass, who wrote an essay about her first love, a forbidden love, with a girl from high school. It's called, Please God, Help Me Stop Missing Her. Here's an excerpt from that essay, read by Julia Whalen. On the first day of 10th grade in Borough Park, Brooklyn, she slung her backpack down near me. Our classmates penciled equations onto graph paper, but she drew on her arm in neon gel pen, Hannah. I rolled up my identical navy-checked sleeve and put a ballpoint pen to my own pale skin. She smirked. I wanted to know everything about her. 
She was from another city where there were no Orthodox Jewish high schools. I don't get this place, she said. I will tell you everything you need to know, I said. We met up in Brooklyn at a concert. We watched Kinneret, our community superstar, her long gown sparkling as she filled the room with song. Hannah was so close that I could feel the movements of her body in the air between us. I clenched my shoulder blades together, tight, tighter. Around us, dozens of pious voices sang with Kinneret about the world to come. Not exactly the appropriate soundtrack for acting on my unholy desires. When the music ended, we watched the crowd disperse onto the streets, a stream of girls and women in modest garb. Want to sleep over? I asked, trying to take the urgency out of my words. Sure. Can we get pizza? In the dim glow of the streetlights, I saw her grin. We created our own concert later that night. A silent orchestra of skin on skin, her breath in my ear, and the pounding of our hearts against each other in the dark. We held each other afterward. I felt her face against mine, her fingers trailing down my back. I wanted to say, I think about you every single day. As the sunlight bled through my window blinds, I tried not to notice the slope of her pale shoulder, the way her dark hair spread over my pillow. This is the last time I promised myself and God as I slid my leg out from between hers. It wasn't the last time. There were other girls. But Sarah saw her desires as unholy, unfaithful. So she shoved them deep inside her, and she committed herself to a life of following the rules. At 19, Sarah got married to a man, and she prayed it would fix her. Here's Sarah. When I got married to my first husband, I had strong feelings that I really should be with a woman and not with a man. But I wanted to do what God said was right. Mm. And so I had made mistakes, but I bought it. I prayed. I fasted. It was like, you know, I'd love to murder people, but <laughs> I'm like over it. Mm. Mostly over it. I only think of it, it like that, once it in a while. It was that evil to you. Yeah. It was... It was akin to murdering someone. Exactly. And I thought, I can do it. Like, it's okay. I can handle it. I'll be with a man. Um, but at least I'll get to be me in this one way. I'll get to have a PhD in psychology. That's like the thing for me. My body's going to be for God. Everything I do every day will be for God. But just like, it was like the one thing. It was like my bargain with God. Mm. Let me just have the PhD in psychology. I just want to do this one thing. Sarah had dreamed of becoming a psychologist since she was a kid. She wanted to work with children and with teenagers, but it was very rare for a woman in her community to get an advanced degree. I knew growing up in the Hasidic, ultra-Orthodox community, becoming a psychologist would be a battle. And so mm. I went and got rabbinic permission from my rabbi to go to graduate school and get a degree in psychology. Mm. But then... My husband seemed 
to disagree with that. And so he went to his rabbi. Mm -hmm. And his rabbi didn't think that would be a very good idea. And so together they decided I should get a master's in social work instead. How did you feel about going to school for a degree that wasn't really the dream you'd had? I was devastated. I was really, really devastated. Mm. It just made me feel completely trapped in a world that I didn't really want. Tell me about what you were learning in this social work program. Social work school was, it was like my first foray out into the real world outside of the ultra-Orthodox community. And Mm. I geared up for college like it was a spiritual battle. Mm. I had like holy texts in my car. I had a buddy, a religious woman from my block who was like traveling with me to college. We had a plan to study Bible works during every lunch break so that whatever we learned in college, we didn't know what it would be. But whatever came at us in the spiritual minefield of social work school, we would be ready. You could combat it. <laughs> we got this. And this one day, my professor rolled one of those old VCRs like into the classroom on the little metal stand. And the entire film was all about um, women dancing with other women and kissing other women. And then men who were wearing nail polish. And I started to get flashbacks Mm. of girls I had been with in high school, Mm -hmm. seeing like the external manifestation of the the demon I had been trying to fight for my entire life. Mm. Made me really worried that my brain would turn back on to having those thoughts and feelings and that I wouldn't be able to shut it off. And then I started to worry. I was breastfeeding my daughter at the time. And I started to worry, what if these things that I see on the screen go into my milk and then they infect my daughter? And so I raised my hand and asked to meet the professor outside of class Mm. and just basically asked to be excused. Was that fear of whatever influence sort of infiltrating your body, was that something faith-based or was that a personal fear of yours? It was Mm faith-based. We were raised to believe that everything we thought had consequences, everything we ate had consequences, and that everything we thought while pregnant had consequences for our fetuses we're carrying. How did you understand your sexuality at that point? I was trying really hard to be straight. And I thought I had mostly conquered what was an evil temptation. And and you felt like, okay, I'm, you were trying so hard. It sounds like you had like such a sort of vice grip on these yeah. desires. But then this video kind of blasted that open again. Is that true? It was threatening to blast that open again. Mm. I had a one and a half year old and a newborn. And I couldn't afford to have all that blasted open. What was at stake for you if those desires did come out again? The risks for me were this. If I were to allow that door to bust open. And if I were to allow myself to have all these thoughts about women, I couldn't lose custody of my children. So the stakes were pretty damn high. After the break, it gets harder and harder for Sarah to lie to herself. And then she's forced to be honest. That's next.
Every great love story begins with a Harry Winston diamond. For nearly a century, Harry Winston has been the name behind some of the world's most exceptional diamonds. That's because every Harry Winston diamond ring is as one of a kind as the love story it represents, the ultimate symbol of romance, devotion, and elegance. From emerald cut and cushion cut to oval and pear-shaped, every diamond is hand-selected for maximum beauty and brilliance and placed in a timeless platinum setting. Say I do to a Harry Winston engagement ring and you're happily ever after at harrywinston.com. My name is Thomas Gibbonsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Eventually, Sarah Glass divorced her first husband. She got remarried to another man who was supportive of her getting her PhD. Those years were busy. She had two little kids. Most nights, she'd study until 4 a.m. Still, sometimes... Her desire would surface. She wanted to be with a woman. But she'd shove it down just like she had for so many years. Finally, Sarah graduated. She fulfilled her childhood dream. She was officially a psychologist. And she opened her own practice on Long Island, treating mostly kids and teens from the ultra-Orthodox community. I got this little cottage set back from the main street on Long Island and decorated three separate play therapy rooms with expressive arts therapy and sand play therapy. Um, and I brought in this wonderful, wonderful team of sensitive, warm child therapists and adult therapists. It was beautiful just to be able to do the work and to go in every day and like have young children and teenagers come in and feel safe. Mm. Did your clients come to you specifically because you were in the community with them? And here's where it gets dicey. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some explicitly did ask before signing up for therapy with me, are you Orthodox? Mm -hmm. And at that time, I did identify as Orthodox, and so I said yes. Mm -hmm. And for some, it was more implied by the way I dressed and the words that I knew how to speak. Mm -hmm. So they would be able to use words like, Shabbos, which is like observing the Sabbath from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday, but they can just weave it into a sentence and I would know exactly what it meant. And, you know, for others, it was that I was seeing their children mm. and they wanted their children to have adults in their lives who were positive role models, who were like adhering to the same value system that the parents are trying to teach at home. Did you feel like a positive role model? I did until I didn't. You know, I started to struggle once I divorced my second husband, and this was just because I was gay. 
and I couldn't do it anymore. And so I chose to get divorced and move to Manhattan and started to date women. And at that point— But you kept your practice on Long Island. I kept my practice on Long Island and built a second one Mm. in Manhattan. Um, I I don't know if I felt like a positive role model, you Mm. know? I felt like maybe a a good therapist, but I was starting to worry about that other part. Mm. Was your dating life, now that you're living in Manhattan and you're divorced, was your dating life seeing women, was that a secret? (sighs) (laughs) looks from your face looks like a complicated answer um i really didn't want it to have to be a secret Mm. but at the same time it wasn't something i advertised Mm. and what i struggled with was this i felt that it was my job as the therapist to create the sanctuary for my clients Mm. and for them to be able to walk into my room and to know like it's safe here i don't need to worry about you Mm. That was like sometimes the only place they had where they didn't have to take care of anybody else or worry about anybody else. And that was sacred to me. And so the struggle was, I know I'm changing some things and I know my clients. So I know that the changes I'm making will give them some pause. But now you don't have that practice on Long Island anymore, correct? It's just the Manhattan one. Tell me about what happened. Okay. Um, I've barely even spoken about this since it happened, Uh, so you'll get to hear very raw. As I'm going through this whole transition, I started to date someone, and I really, really liked her. And she's sort of a masculine-presenting lesbian, uh, and I was grappling with this, like, staying closeted versus coming out. And so when she wanted to post some pictures of us on her personal social media pages— even though I knew it was a little risky, I was like so tired of being closeted that I was like, you go do that. Don't Mm -hmm. tag me. Mm -hmm. Keep your page private, but let's be proud in this little area of your private social media page. Unfortunately, um, those pictures got leaked. Like one person saw them and then screenshot them and communities like that um, they have chats, WhatsApp the chats, the Orthodox yeah. communities. Mm-hmm. So my picture went viral. <laughs> On really the Orthodox quickly. chats. Yes. So when I first heard this was happening, I spoke with my team. These were people I employed, and they had already known mm-hmm. that I was changing. And I said to them, if this becomes an issue for you guys, I will step down from my position at the head of the practice. You know, if this blows up, I'm going to just, duck out of the way and take all the fires so you guys can like just get away scot-free and continue to build your careers oh yeah i'm feel. i mean it i i think i want you to keep i think that's a like a generous thing to say to your staff it's clear that you cared for them so much but also even the language duck away i'll take the fire yeah i mean it's pretty violent language that you're using you know it's clear that you were preparing for a potential onslaught I was. And like when the picture got leaked, I started to get these phone calls at first from some clients. Mm. And they never said, like, we have a problem with you being gay. But what they said was, like, let's put all our sessions on hold for now, you know. Or they would say things like, we just wish you had been authentic with us about who you are. And 
they weren't wrong to feel like a little bit deceived. You know, I'm a feminine presenting lesbian, so I have that privilege where I don't have to, like, I didn't have to change my appearance to feel true to who I was. Mm. They also met me being married to a man, wearing a wig, and I look kind of the same, just without the wig. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had given every impression mm -hmm. that I was, like, kind of still similar to the person they had known me to be when they met me. Mm -hmm. Did you get any calls from clients themselves and not just the parents of clients? Yes. Um, I had been in the community for several years, so there were some kids I had watched them grown, grow up. Like, I had treated them from, like, second grade to seventh grade or yeah. something like that. I knew when their teeth fell out. I helped them go on their first overnight sleepovers. And so there was one teenager, she reached out to me and said, the person I would normally talk to about this would be you. And now I can't even talk to you. And I just don't even know if I'll ever trust anybody again. Oh, my God. How did you respond to that? I cried. <laughs> that, that one really broke me. I didn't say that to the child. Uh, I validated her feelings. I apologized to her. Um, I told her I understood. And then I would talk with her mom about how she could move forward because, again, you know, she was a child. I didn't want to, like, violate the parents' wishes and engage too much in this out-of-session communication. Did you eventually follow up on your promise to your staff and leave that practice? Yes. I had this one associate on my staff whom I had been working with for the longest, and she called me and she said, you know, it's time. And I remember driving around Columbus Circle. And I just couldn't remember how to get out of the circle. <laughs> I was like driving around and around and around, like trying to stay cool on the phone. And pretty much overnight had to shut that practice down. And actually, I do want to mention there were some clients who called me and had different conversations with me. And they mm. said, you've been our therapist for all these years. We know who you are. And we hope you're happy. Mm -hmm. And where's your new office? Because we're going to take the train mm. and we'll be there. It sounds like you were being so strong for the people around you. But, I mean, this is devastating. How were you coping? Um, my The person I was dating at the time is now my wife. And she remembers just holding me uh, through those nights. I would just sometimes wake up, like, shaking and crying. It was just... All I wanted to do is be a safe person for those children, those teens. And then when I turned into the person who, who hurt them and who caused them pain, um, I really, really needed her. And I was glad that she was there. You married the woman in the yes. photo. She is the most loving, sweetest um, person I could ever have imagined it, ending up with. And uh, she and I actually have another child together. Wow. He's two and a half now. Uh, and he's just like the sweetest. And your two kids have a baby brother. Yes, they do. They're great with him. How old are they now? They're juniors in oh, high man. school. Whoa. <laughs> so in our household <laughs> right now, we are, we're doing college tours. Are you still in touch with anyone in the Orthodox community where you grew up? No. Mm -hmm. Not at all. 
No, I'll occasionally have like little uh, bits of communication with my siblings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that they cut me off or I cut them off. It's just that they live in a world where having a queer sister would be a problem for them. Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel homesick for that community at all? Yeah, um, I do. They're only like about 11 miles away from where Close. we are right now. And I know that because I've gone onto Google Maps and been like, how far is my sister from where I am? And how mm. crazy is that, that we're living such completely different lives? And there are many times when I feel like um, I just want to call someone, you know, and just say this great thing happened today. And I don't have that many of those people. And sometimes I'm just like, you know, gefilte fish is this Jewish food. It's like, imagine like taking white fish, grinding it, mixing it with flour and baking it as a loaf. Hmm. It's not the best, but I'll be like, I just want like gefilte fish, you know, like once in a while I'll buy a jar of it. Mm. Like my family's like, just, can you just put that in the back of the fridge? But I'll eat a piece just to feel like that connection to home. Sarah, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for being open to hearing all about the good, the bad, the difficult. I appreciate it. Modern Love is back for a whole new season. Episodes drop every week on Wednesday. Modern Love is produced by Julia Botero, Christina Josa, Elissa Dudley, and Hans Buto. It's edited by Sarah Saracen. This episode was mixed by Sophia Landman and Corey Shreppel, and our show was recorded by Maddie Masiello. The Modern Love theme music is by Dan Powell. Digital production by Mahima Jablani and Nell Galogli. Special thanks to Anna Diamond at Autumn. The Modern Love column is edited by Daniel Jones. Mia Lee is the editor of Modern Love Projects. I'm Anna Martin. Thanks for listening. <laughs> 